folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Welcome to episode 5 of the Folklore Podcast, Playing the Ghost. I'm your host, Mark Norman, a folklore writer and researcher based in the southwest of the UK. We all engage with folklore during our daily lives. Here on the Folklore Podcast, we love to hear stories from our listeners which relate to the themes that we discuss on the show. You can contact us via the contact form on our website to send in your thoughts and stories. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter too, because we'll be using some of your stories in future editions of that. Listener Elizabeth Rimmer did just this. She wrote in to tell us about her experiences surrounding a particular ghost story in her area. She said, I live in a small village called Cambusgeneth on the banks of the River Forth. It has a ruined abbey and there are plenty of stories about the ghosts of monks wandering about, also of people hearing the cries of children who lived in an orphanage here and worked in the orchards. There isn't much truth in any of this. There was no such orphanage, though the orchards did exist, and the last remnant still does. The only verified sighting of a monk turned out to be an actual monk, a visiting friend of mine, and I put most of the stories down to inherited guilt. The mist in the river valleys and the fact that Cambuskeneth has a long tradition of people coming over the river to drink if they couldn't afford to be seen drinking in Stirling. But the story I'm going to tell is a different one. The mother of an elderly friend of mine had an orchard full of plum trees and apple trees, and miners from Stirling used to cross the river and walk through the village to the pits at Polmaze, and in autumn they would plunder the trees, much to her annoyance. One year, she put on her husband's grey overcoat and a sheet over her head and waited in the orchard for the miners to arrive. She jumped out at them, screeching, and they ran away. She never had any trouble after that. So far, so comical. But, sixty years later when I moved here, elderly miners would still try to discourage me and my friends from walking round the village after dark. The story then took on a new lease of life, when I told a young Irish friend the story. Fresh from a family where the grey lady was a real and terrifying visitor to hospitals, 
she refused to visit me ever again. Elizabeth's story demonstrates how the invention of a ghost can continue many years later and begin to be accepted as the genuine article, leading to its embedding in the folklore of the area. This is a form of myth-making in action. My guest on this episode, who will explore these themes, is Dr David Waldron, a lecturer in the fields of sociology and history at Federation University, Australia. David has made a particular study of the area of Victorian ghost hoaxing, having recently written an extensive article on the subject for the journal Folklore. Instead of an interview, David kindly prepared an exclusive talk for this show under the title Playing the Ghost, Hoaxing and Guising in the Victorian Era. I'll be back at the end of the show, but in the meantime, please enjoy Dr David Waldron's fascinating talk. So the subject of playing the ghost, or ghost hoaxing, it was a phenomenon that was quite prolific in the latter part of the 19th century. And it's interesting, it's a story I first came onto through the work of Mike Dash on the character of Spring-Heeled Jack. And I'd also come across this work with regards to the book <coughs> Spirits of Industrial Age by Jacob Middleton. And of course, one of the first things that started to come to my mind when I'm reading about these kind of characters in the context of prolific ghost hoaxing in which characters like spring Jack and the resultant legends were formed was whether this was happening elsewhere outside the British Isles. Jacob Middleton certainly didn't think so, but having access to those resources, I began to investigate these kinds of stories using the same sorts of search terms, same sorts of ideas, same themes in which... Uh, people describe this phenomenon in the British Isles. And incidentally, since then, contact with other colleagues suggests that this is also quite prolific in the United States and Canada. Indeed, it seems to be a phenomenon that stretched right across the British Empire at its heyday. And there's a particular context to these stories. Ghosts were an immensely popular subject in the Victorian era. Ghost stories and hauntings are very popular subjects for entertainment. This is the peak period of Gothic literature. They attracted significant attention in the printed press. They also were quite prolific at public gatherings and lectures. It's also particularly pertinent when we look at the context of Ballarat, a goldfields town in the late 19th century, and one which was formed by huge numbers of rural immigrants from all over the United Kingdom. And they brought their folklore with them finding things like witching marks and hexafoils uh, put into the doorway of old mining cottages is quite common. Quite often old churches will have the same kind of markings in the back wall that you find in the British Isles. Uh, exorcisms were quite prolific on the goldfields. And it was also a place that, for all the idealism people had of looking for gold, it was also a period marked by death. Death in the mines, death in childbirth, death through disease prolific murders. And these sorts of issues, <clears throat> while perhaps particularly pertinent in colonial Australia, were very much also issues going on in the Victorian era. When you think about the impact of death through uh, diseases such as cholera, for example. The other thing is we're also seeing a period of history in which many of the old traditions of folklore are being challenged. At the same time, the new scientific model hasn't really replaced them. We have a lot of synergy between them, particularly through spiritualism. 
And so it's particularly pertinent um, in the Australian context, for instance, when Sir Archibald Mitchie, Attorney Agent General, General for the Colony of Victoria, you know, a, se a senior government official was brought in to deliver a lecture on ghosts and hauntings. And he argued that, you know, while in a sense there was no scientific evidence for such things, he argued that this was an important part of cultural heritage. He said that if you couldn't believe in ghosts and hauntings, that a man has, and I quote, lost forever the supernatural shudder, the terrifically delicious creeping of the hair and of the heart creeping into the mouth, attendant on his listening to or even reading for the first time an authentic and by justices of the peace attested ghost story. And this kind of attitude that ghost seeing or ghost feeling was uniquely part of the, uh, the experience of the human condition. And that the decline in the respectability of this belief had also led to a sense of loss in the sublime, the wonder, the connection with the heritage and magic of life, in a sense very much tied into the romantic response to industrialization and the Enlightenment. So it's quite interesting when we look at the prolific nature of this. It's also a period in which older traditions had been discredited, yet the traditional theological responses, those eschatological responses, had been found wanting. So in a sense, culturally specific beliefs in the spirit world were part of this profound link to homeland, to community identity, to connection to heritage. And in a sense, too, the idea of folklore itself as an object of study was predicated on the notion of the death of tradition and the focal point of concern when people feel disconnected to heritage. At the same time, though, the way these beliefs shape and evolve over time were also profoundly shaped through the anxieties and framework of the present even if through romantic and nostalgic reconstruction of the past. Sir Archibald Mystery, uh, Mitchie's nostalgic longing for the folklore of haunting and ghost stories were also part of that sublime experience of life and heritage. And so, on the one hand, the existence of these beings in a literal sense were rejected through the framework of scientific prog progress. At the same time, they came to dominate culture. And indeed, as an editorial in the Argus at the time commented, in relation to this spread of ghost hoaxing and supernaturalism, the editorial went, it's a noticeable symptom of the reactionary movement against the materialistic philosophy, so much in vogue at the present day, that ghosts, after having been an object of contempt to the educated and intelligent classes for some generations, are once again growing into favour. We are not now alluding to the phenomena of spiritualism, which some years ago threatened to make the spirits of the dead quite as common as, and a great deal more commonplace than the persons of the living. But outside the obscure regions tenanted by this creed, there are distinct signs that ghosts, which we thought were laughed out of existence by the robust common sense of the 18th century, are creeping back into the world, revisiting again the glimpses of the moon in these rather sickly times of the moribund 19th century. It's a wonderful quote, this. And it's an interesting point where, you know, tensions about these beliefs were running quite high. In 1881, 
uh, a gathering at the Galloway Monument at Ballarat had over 400 people to listen to a speech about ghosts and hauntings. And the discrediting of this be uh, belief by a local preacher ended up in him being chased up the street by an angry mob. So, in a sense, these stories were very important to people. And if you go through the papers of this period, they abound in stories of headless horsemen and headless horsewomen, women in white, headless animals, black dogs, the ghosts of murdered victims. You know, these stories um, proliferated enormously through the newspapers, stories and books and so on of the time. And indeed, it's in this context that we also start seeing a massive proliferation of ghost hoaxing, people going out and, as they called it at the time, playing the ghost. Indeed, if you go through the newspapers of this period, some editorials go as far as advocating armed constables and vigilantes, patrolling ruined buildings and cemeteries with orders to shoot ghosts on sight with buckshot. We also have, of course, the ghost nuisance, uh, even at the point in the British context of uh, haunting armed servicemen at Aldershot. Most commonly, when stories of hauntings were reported, <coughs> They were done so within the context of scepticism, showing both an enjoyment of the storytelling, yet also relegating the idea of ghosts to the realm of ridicule and bemusement. One great story I came across was the story of a headless hound that actually turned out on closer, uh, closer inspection to actually be a cat with its head stuck in a tin of tuna. Another story was of a Castlemaine stockman who in rural Victoria came across a headless horsewoman at night and apparently was in such a state he had to be resta restrained by several police officers and medical personnel. When uh, upon a, uh, investigation of the site people found a draper's dummy next to a stump. You know these stories are very prolific but there was a certain humour in how they're reported. Yet quite often these stories are put into the context of hoaxing, and hoaxing itself was quite prolific. Ghost hoaxing, or playing the ghost, was rife through newspaper reportage, particularly from the 1860s onwards. People in costumes would leap out a sail scare and throw things at people late at night. And indeed, in the method I took for this, I took the newspaper reportage, particularly pertaining to when people had been arrested or beaten by vigilantes, and cross-referenced with public records of petty crimes and in some cases serious crimes because on many such occasions the ghost hoaxing exercise also turned into accounts of sexual assault, robbery and in some cases even murder. But many of these ghost figures would wear quite elaborate costumes. The bulk of them would wear sheets soaked with phosphorus but some went to quite considerable effort and they gained nicknames through the local press as they played cat and mouse games with police and vigilantes. One story was of a young man wearing a white sheet and a tall sugar loaf hat soaked in phosphorus, and he was given a beating by two local residents in lieu of being handed over to police. And he turned out in the long run to actually be an employee at the local state school. One figure was called the Wizard Bombardier and dressed in white robes as some sort of sorcerer who'd leap out scream obscenities at people and throw things at them before making his escape across the countryside. In particular, there was an interesting context to this where people were routinely using phosphorescent paint, which is an interesting mix of both the historical and the technological. 
Indeed, when you go through reports at this time of plays, quite often characters such as the ghost in Hamlet would be covered in phosphorescent paint to create a ghostly effect. I speculate that the way we think of ghosts today, with their glowing green colouring in cinema, is perhaps a product of this identification of special effects with the idea of ghosts. One particular example I came across, though, was an individual who patrolled the streets of Ballarat in black robes with occult symbols painted on them with glow-in-the-dark paint and covered his face and arms with phosphorescent paint to create the illusion of a corpse. And he'd go out accosting and assaulting. Another apparition bore a skull and crossbones emblazoned on his bare chest and would expose himself from under his sheet and show the word death. One man in Bendigo in rural Victoria was found to be accosting young women dressed in a white overcoat with a suit dyed with phosphorescent paint. It was quite extraordinary, some of these cases. Probably my favourite case in the Ballarat context was a man by the name of Herbert Patrick McLennan. And he played a cat and mouse game with police. He even wrote letters to the Ballarat City Council, particularly once in a reward for five pounds was offered for his arrest. And he would in a sense, do a bit of parkour and very much imitating the kinds of stories you see about Spring-Heeled Jack, run along the rooftops, leaping down, accosting people in a rather spectacular outfit of a white top hat, white frock coat, bodysuit soaked in glow-in-the-dark paint, knee-high Indian rubber boots and wielding a cat and nine tails. And when he was finally arrested, <coughs> police went to his home on Drummond Street and, you know, found his costuming and took the rather amusing uh, method of arresting him by having young constables dressed as ladies of the night, shall we say, around the train station. He was found to be an elocutionist from Britain, very well respected, very well connected, um, and working as a senior clerk. And so there was an interesting little context here where it was by far more than just a case of simple rural larrikinism as often described in the papers. In a sense, it became a vehicle through which people could, in a sense, break free of traditional constraints of morality. Certainly, Herbert Patrick McLennan, on many occasions, would also expose himself and his genitals to women at night. Uh, one fellow travelling through Eureka Street in Ballarat actually had a coffin lid strapped to his back, clawed hands, again, a little feature taken from spring Jack, white uh, paint across his face, and hands that glowed in the dark and uh, grave-smeared uh, clothing. And he actually engaged in sexual assaults quite routinely, which must have been quite a horrifically terrifying experience. We also see, um, though far less common, women. Um, certainly the case of a woman patrolling London um, with her body soaked in glow-in-the-dark paint exposing one left breast. There's a story from Bendigo in rural Victoria of a woman with a glow-in-the-dark wedding dress who painted herself to look like a white porcelain doll and she actually went and played guitar on the roof of the Santos Hotel, which is you know, quite a remarkable sight. The papers, in fact, said if only all ghosts should play so well, which is funny in my modern Gen X context. I can't help but think of you know, something from 80s glam rock, which you know, amuses me quite a lot. But there's some other stories too. There was a lady who went out at night in one case 
and she dressed herself as a man. She'd engage in male conversation, as it was called in the papers. And when people were fully convinced she was actually a man, she'd suddenly expose herself and reveal her identity to be a woman. She was charged with indecent exposure, which gives me some perhaps imaginative suggestions as to what she was doing. But after she was sent to the Ararat Lunatic Asylum, when she emerged, she took to hiding under the bridges and leaping out at people dressed as a monster in a glow-in-the-dark robe and with a hideous papier-mâché mask. And one can only speculate the kinds of theatrical plays are at work here. Certainly, there's also some more prosaic, prosaic cases of women who went out dressed in white robes as a ghost and engaged in simple petty crime like stealing chickens. We also had some quite dramatic cases as a minor by the name of Frederick Parks being stabbed and nearly killed when he um, intervened in a man dressed as a ghost sexually assaulting a woman. And as he came to intervene, he drew a dagger and stabbed Mr. Parks and then leapt over the fence to make his escape. So we have quite a strong tradition here. Um, <clears throat> it's one which, in a sense, gave people a vehicle to deal with repressed emotions, repressed issues, to act in a way that would be inc incredibly inappropriate in mainstream society. We also have, in a sense, people physically becoming the embodiment of death, but also people as well in this respect, becoming that, in that this phosphorescent paint they were using was horrifically toxic and led to all sorts of cancers and tumours. The other thing, of course, is much like the proliferation of, for example, UFO hoaxes during the period where the X-Files is extremely popular, people were enacting the pop culture of the day. And so we have a very interesting fusion here between popular culture and penny dreadfuls with folklore with creative and artistic expression mike dash also makes the argument that for the first time many people in the middle class in late victorian england had leisure time and it's a period where there was very little low-cost entertainment it's not like today where you could lose an evening on an xbox you had to make your own entertainment and so in a sense this cat and mouse game became quite a lark and so there's actually quite a number of people who also played with these ghosts. They engaged in what was called laying the ghost, which is a term itself, of course, that has roots back to the 16th century in terms of resolving the repressed trauma of actual hauntings, looking at ghosts as a symbolic way of coming to terms with traumatic experiences in a community. But in this case, it was often used as a term to describe exposing hoaxes. One man by the name of Charles Horman, for example, went so far as to fire his shotgun at a suspected ghost and beat another with a walking stick to assist a young woman who'd been accosted by them. A lady by the name of uh, Mrs. Date, uh, she took a very similar approach, having her daughter being quite routinely scared when she went down for water. Uh, she went to the location with her bull terrier and sicked the animal on the ghost when she found him there hiding behind some bushes. And these acts of vigilantism are quite common. In the Ballarat case, there was a great story of some ewes who fashioned pikes to chase a ghost and had him bailed up in a tree. And if you look through the papers, certainly in the British context and in the Australian, you'll find 
many, many wonderful examples of these stories. And also, particularly if you look at the equivalent of the tabloids at the time, such as the Illustrated Police News, wonderful illustrations that have both a wonderful sense of humour, but also a fantastic sense of the Gothic. I quite love the old woodcuts from that period and have maintained quite a collection of them. So, you know, these stories, I've talked more about the Australian context here as it's where I've done more of my research, but they're you know, very, very closely mirrored in Britain. We have the story of the Peckham ghost, for example, where a young lady was assaulted by a man pretending to be a ghost in a long overcoat with white lining, white waistcoat and a dark hat with a plume of spectacular feathers. We have a story of a man engaged in monster-related pranks at police barracks in Newport, dressed in a sheepskin costume with a tail, pretending to be, you know, some sort of werewolf. And in a sense, these stories are very, very similar. There's some differences in terms of the perceived culprit in Australia aimed at larrikinism, being working-class people trained tricks in the intelligentsia. In the British context, it was typically seen as... Uh, upper-class, bored noblemen with nothing to do, entertaining themselves by preying on poor working people. But the themes are very similar. And of course, the most iconic example of this we have are the examples of Spring-Heeled Jack. And of course, what we're really talking about here is a network of ghost hoaxes that went under this same um, title. In a sense, Spring-Heeled Jack became a euphemism both in Australia and in Britain for these stories. If you look at some of the costumes ascribed to Spring-Heeled Jack, for example, you're having a white, uh, a white oil-skin coat, a bright light, uh, clawed hands, you know, breathing fire, you know, magician's tricks and so on, but nonetheless a very similar mixture of theatricality based on pop culture and folklore in a very interesting integrated melange. And so there's a very interesting context here that we have this integration of established ghost folklore derived from Britain, but also in a very cosmopolitan society of late Victorian Britain, a melange of different cultures and different ghost traditions that are also being integrated with an increasingly global culture. And the attacks of these ghost hoaxes also drew attention to the margins of moral respectability they drew attention to sexual repression. They drew attention to the boundaries of enlightenment reasoning. In an era where ghosts are seen as primitive superstition, I can think of very little more satisfi satisfying act and activity as to get a member of the intelligentsia terrified out of his wits. In a sense, scared beyond all reason, if you pardon the enlightenment pun. One of the things, of course, shapes this is the literature itself on ghost stories and hauntings. And much of the literature on ghost stories and hauntings focuses on the notion of trauma. And this, in a sense, this darkness that lay behind the horseplay was an important context here. And this is to say that ghost stories quite often function as a means to memorialize trauma in a community and to bind people together through that experience via storytelling. You know, often these stories, particularly when we're looking at folkloric stories, they may not necessarily be literally true in the modern sense, but they do refer to the kinds of issues faced by communities in shared past. Like the story you find all over the world of a woman who's become 
pregnant to a landlord or a local nobleman or whatever and has had to commit suicide to avoid disgrace. These stories are, whether or not it's actually happened in this house or the woman drowned herself in this pond, they relate to the kinds of traumas that women have always had to deal with. In a sense, the ghost is a figure that speaks of loss, trauma and injustice that through storytelling creates a haunting effect. And in a sense, these ghost hoaxes were also drawing on local traditions, finding places where you had an established ghost story, whether it be a black hound or the ghost of a lady in white, and reenacting it through theatricality, through storytelling. And it's this kind of approach that Sir Archibald Mitchie was alluding to in his uh, lecture at the Mechanics Institute. The ghosts were a vestige of the past that connects us to heritage, trauma and identity through this ritual act of storytelling and theatricality and even hoaxing. It's a kind of myth-making. And it's myth-making that transcends that notion of a reason-controlled world through the emotional power of the story and the display. So in this sense, ghost stories certainly draw upon the established imagery of hauntings. And they have close links back to much older, much more local folklore. And in particular, certainly in the Australian context, and of course, obviously in the British, drawing back to these regional experiences in the British Isles. They represented a new approach. And in a sense, one t that started to disconnect ghosts from heritage and folklore and brought them into the realm of popular culture. They also related to this kind of crisis that George Ewart Evans talks about, of people raised in a tradition where these symbols and stories and their folklore have enormous emotional power, yet also raised in the context of an Enlightenment education system that tells you that such things are superstitious nonsense. And you get this sort of push to try and validate one's heritage and one's folklore through hoaxing. It, it, that sense, that literalism that you can try and engender through a well-crafted hoax gives authenticity and weight to the experience, at least until it's found out. But even when it's found out, it also reassures the mind that you know such things aren't true, that they're just fabrications. But it does, through this enactment, bring it... <clears throat> in a sense, as a kind of pseudoscience to help reconcile that cognitive dissonance between our heritage, the emotional power of these stories, the folklore, and of course, a rational, scientific-based approach to reason. And these stories were also tied to a broader history of differing religious attitudes to ghost stories. They entwined Protestant and Catholic rivalry, and this is particularly the case both in Britain and Australia, certainly with regards to the Irish. On the one hand, ghosts were constructed as a legacy of paper superstition and idolatry, but in doing so, they also became a symbol of Irish rebellion. On the other hand, there was also a Protestant notion of the realm of the spirits that could commune with the living, the kind of theme that was also appropriated in the spiritualist movement. And so this ambiguity underlay the way in which people's um, sense of engagement with ghosts transformed over time. They also, I think, underlay the popularity of spiritualism and, of course, the enormous popularity of ghost stories in Gothic literature. In fact, I'd suggest they still do. 
So while certainly some hoaxes were driven by more base or even criminally inspired motives, the act of playing the ghost and the joy of a successful hoax challenged that surety of intellectual certainty of the non-existence of the spirit world. It also drew attention to the emotive power of these stories from the past. One was literally cloaking oneself, in a sense enacting the paraphernalia of that superstitious past and the traumas of that past that lie behind the idea of ghosts and of course the haunting the very notion of a haunting effect. The act of hoaxing also created this liminal or in-between space outside the borders of morality and respectability where you could enact things like challenging gender roles. It was like one story I came across, for example, was of an enormously tall ghost wearing some sort of uh, long white dress and pale face smeared with phosphorus. And in one case, encountered a woman who, upon first being terrified, attacked the ghost, and the ghost hit her across the face and leapt over a fence. Shortly thereafterwards, a man came out half-dressed, seeing the woman, and attempted to comfort her and help her. Police arrived shortly thereafter on the scene to arrest the man for cross-dressing and transvestism. And there's an interesting little dynamic here, where, of course, the implications, certainly as the papers suggested, are obvious, but... It's also where the story becomes a vehicle through which the man can express issues that he can't deal with in his normal daily life, to challenge those traditional gender roles. It let people engage in the perpetration of sexual taboo breaching, you know, public exposure, sexual assault, foul language, a woman being free of the traditional clothing of the period, you know, going around half-naked, exposing a left-dressed... Um, pretending to be the ghost of Boudicca. In fact, that happened a number of times. You know, people could violate these traditional um, restraints of morality. And in a sense, there's a kind of freedom with that. And so, in a sense, the elaborate nature of a lot of the costuming, the care taken by hoaxes to create theatre around their exploits, the relish they had with challenging taboos and challenging government uh, power, for that matter, challenging church morality. This sense of transgression to these hoaxes who routinely arrest, uh, risked arrest, disgrace and vigilantism to become ghosts was quite important to them. And in a sense, what better way to challenge notions of class, enlightenment values, and the social order than to become a symbol of death, in some cases quite literally, given the high toxicity of the paints they were using, at the very least, and not to mention risk of getting shot or beaten. But in a sense, what better way to challenge than to take on this identity, to terrify people beyond all reason, and in a sense, show the limitations of this very fragile enlightenment construction of a controlled clockwork universe. My thanks go to Dr David Waldron for preparing that address, especially for you, the Folklore Podcast listeners. Feedback from many of you tells us that you love the mix of education and entertainment, of academic information in an accessible way, and the free access to great guests that the Folklore Podcast provides you. We're so happy that you've engaged with the show in this way since its inception, and the show grows every day. 
We put in many hours of work into preparing the episodes, the guests and supplements for these podcasts. But we believe that this information should be free, so we won't charge you for listening or downloading. Some of you want to support us, and we want to reward you for doing so. If you can't support financially, then please support by sharing, rating and reviewing our shows. This is a massive help. However, we have now set up a Patreon reward scheme for listeners who are able to help us out a little. The entry-level reward is just a dollar a month, and for this, you receive every episode supplement, a beautiful electronic magazine about the themes of the episode, delivered to your email. For regular supplement purchases, this is two magazines for less than the price of one. If you don't regularly take the supplements, it's such a cheap way to collect them all. Other rewards include exclusive patron-only mini-episodes and films, a patron-only t-shirt, and other gifts right up to a monthly Google Hangout with the show creators, limited to ten people. To help support the show and receive some great rewards, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast and sign up today. Thank you so much. See you next time.